you are the MP for New Forest West and you've been the MP since 1997. So the first question I'd like to ask you is what are the core values that have driven your political career today? I suppose that in any walk of life, uh, your core values will inform your decisions about your career, you know, is what you want to do. I mean, I've always been a Christian since as long ago as I can remember. And so I have strong views about the way society should function and the way that um, the country should be run. Uh, and those inform my desire to be a politician and to bring about change. But equally, um, you know, given that I have a political, uh, a religious perspective as well, that clearly informs, as it will in any walk of life, inform the decisions and the way that you live your life. Thank you so much. And you have been a member of Christians in Parliament for a while now, and you did a fantastic um, part of the Easter video that they did, which I really enjoyed. So what do you believe are some of the challenges that Christian space in the contemporary world of politics? Well, I think that, you know, the, the, there are Christians throughout the world who face vastly more uh, challenging circumstances than we do. I mean, let's face it, if Jesus is Lord, where does that live Kim Jong-un um, <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, leader who wants to dominate every aspect of life and wants control of an entire country, they are deeply suspicious of people who actually worship another Lord <laughs> uh, and are, you know, uh, and other servants of another Lord. Uh, and that is, you know, a great threat to them. And uh, mercifully, we don't face the persecution that comes with that in this country. But I think there has certainly, I think this is becoming less so in my view, but I certainly think in the last um, 30 years or so, there has been an increasing belief that religious belief is something for the private sphere and it has no place in the public sphere. And we have sought to exclude religious belief as far as possible from public decision making and become a secular society. And I think that that is that's perhaps the greatest threat to ensure that we have as religious people, as Christian people or as Muslim people or whatever, we have a right to speak in the public sphere and to inform public debate with our values as much as anyone else. Uh, and we've seen uh, areas where you know, there's always this attempt to push religious belief to the side. We had, for example, a, uh, a position where um, a parish council began its proceedings with prayer. And one of the councillors took this to the high court and had it ruled as ultra virus. They had no, no business having that formally on the agenda. And, and uh, to my great satisfaction, the Secretary of State produced uh, an order in council within 48 hours in Parliament to reverse that judgment. Uh, and, and because remember that every parliamentary day begins with the Speaker's chaplain and the Speaker processing to the Chamber of the House of Commons 
and beginning the formal day's proceedings with prayer. You know, we aren't a secular society. We have an established church. The Queen is head of that church. And that establishment provides an umbrella under which all different denominations and faiths can shelter. They have their right to speak in the public sphere. Thank you so much for that. Without answer, and between 1997 and 2003, you served in the military. So, what were some of the skills that you have learned from the military that have enabled you to become a successful politician you are today? Oh, well, you're very kind in in um, uh, characterising me in that way as a successful politician. Um, I I tend to the view that all political careers end in failure, <laughs> but, but, but there it is. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yes, there are, of course there are things. I mean, I think I think the most obvious thing is in the military you are taught to communicate clearly and swiftly, and that's something politicians can learn an awful lot from. In the number of times I have sat and listened to colleagues pumping out hot air um, as they go on and, you know, loving the sound of their own voice, as indeed I do, I, I, I admit, I'm the first to admit it, but they don't half bang on without getting to the point. In the military, you learn very quickly how to convey your orders swiftly and succinctly so there's absolute clarity and no one can be any in doubt as to what your objective is, what the mission is and how you intend to achieve it. So that's one thing. I think another thing is leadership. I mean, the whole military training for officers and NCOs and indeed uh, uh, junior soldiers as well is to bring forward their leadership ability uh, so that they can take command when it's necessary. Uh, and that they, uh, you know, they can do the business. And I think that part of our political culture is that, you know, this belief that politicians should follow public opinion and mm. should, you know, constantly read the opinion polls and, uh, and do what their constituents say. Actually, my belief is I'm a representative of, let's say, 70,000 odd voters in New Forest West, I can't possibly run a continuous opinion poll <laughs> about what they think about things. I have to, I have to, I have to be the representative of the ninety-nine percent of them who actually never, ex never express an opinion to me at all. My job is as a leader. My job is to lead public opinion, even where it might be unpopular. It's for me to get out there and say what I believe is right and persuade people to try and follow me. That's part of the leadership deal, in my view. And certainly, I, certainly my perception is that I've benefited a huge amount from military leadership training in transferring that to try and lead public opinion in my constituency, sometimes in the face of you know, the teeth of opposition. Thank you so much for that. Uh, particularly as you talked about leadership and following on from that, what do you like most about being an MP? Well, you know, <laughs> there's no getting away from it. I like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> um, I have always enjoyed public debates. You know, when I was at school, I was part of the debate. 
and I enjoy getting up and, uh, and making an argument. Um, and I enjoy the interaction and the, the cut and thrust of the House of Commons. And equally, I enjoy a huge amount of the work that inevitably you experience in going out and about in your constituency. You, it, it, it may seem strange to people who have such a low, po low politician, um, a, a low um, estimate of politicians, but actually a huge number of people um, actually want their member of parliament to come to their social gatherings and their, um, uh, let's say, their, their, their cheese and wine party, their, their, their summer lunch, their, their fate. And actually, there's a huge opportunity for a politician to get out and meet people and feel what, they re what their real concerns are. Because I have, I have a prejudice of what I think is important. It's often quite humbling to find out what ordinary people think is important. But those are a very enjoyable occasions. And people say to me, oh, Desmond, you're very good coming along. Actually, I'm at work now. It's quite good work if you can get it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thank you. And uh, even following on from that, you made a very powerful argument in Parliament last year about censorship. Yes, I've been reflecting about what you meant, because often one can makes, you know, uh, points in Parliament um, and then uh, not entirely recall. Um, can you remember the context in which I made that? So it was basically during the pandemic, you're talking about the censorship of any ideas that were different. Ah, right, yes. Now, now what I mean, so, so I wasn't talking about um, government censorship. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking about the censorship that seems, and we've had an example of this very recently in Sussex University. Mm -hmm. where um, a philosopher makes a point that flies in the face of some of the, um, uh, the, the received wisdom of the modern era, mm -hmm. and they're silenced by a chorus of disapproval. And I found throughout the pandemic, there was a very significant body of scientific opinion which believed that the policies that we're pursuing were the wrong ones. Now, my belief is that that should be a matter of public debate, but they were increasingly being silenced by a chorus of disapproval. And so I would get informative briefings from eminent professors and clinicians, doctors, and they would all say, but, but don't mention my name. You know, I, I want to tell you this, this is happening and this is the way it is, and uh, um, these are important points that are being ignored, but please don't mention me. And I think that's very, very unhealthy, where people become, people feel that they're not prepared to put their head above the parapet for being, you know, a, a, a chorus of disapproval. I think that that's one of the, uh, the, the dangers that we have. We want an open society where people can share their ideas and have an argument and have a dispute and let's... Let's see who wins. But I think there's a great danger nowadays. And part of this is social media, the vitriol of social media, where someone says something and this is a chorus of the most vile stuff out there. That's why my advice to so many of their, my colleagues is don't read it. It'll only upset you. Mm -hmm. 
Thank, thank you so much for that because it's really important what you say, even about being able to talk without having, you know, a lot of backlash unnecessarily. So that's quite powerful. And um, following following on from that, you were the former inter- minister for international development under David Cameron. How do you handle the challenges of being in the limelight? Because what? <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, you don't get much limelight for being the Minister for International Development uh-huh. or, or indeed any minister. Because remember, when you're a minister, you are confined to your particular brief. Uh-huh. And you only come to the House of Commons and speak on your particular brief when, when, so for example, for the half an hour a month for international development questions, or very rarely if you had an international development bill, which might be once every other year you would be in the House of Commons performing and and doing that. Most of the time, yes, you would have a public profile, but only amongst those organisations, NCOs, charities that had a specific interest in international development or when you went overseas and were visiting ministers. Um, But in terms of a public profile that would make you recognisable in the street, you don't tend to get that as a minister. Where I'd say I've had that, more recently, is because of the profile I had during the pandemic. Because of the stance that I took, uh, is, you know, speaking out uh, against lockdown and for um, uh, liberty and not being told what to do and how to do it, and who you can meet and, and what you can do and what you must wear and all that, I got a much greater profile than I ever got from being a minister. I've got many more followers on social media. And of course, I got noticed. You know, I suddenly started to find that I was being stopped in the street. And people, people want to hear stories. People want selfies with you and all that. Well, <laughs> hey, I can handle that. <laughs> what, what, where the public profile is something that you have a problem handling is where you have a barrage of criticism, be it in emails, Facebook, um, uh, Twitter, whatever. But my my reaction to that is don't read it. I'm afraid I'm very bad with these things in terms of Facebook and, uh, and Twitter. I'm on permanent send. I will use them as a tool to broadcast, but I will not read the stuff that comes back. If you want to contact me, you can write to me or you can email me at the House of Commons, but don't sell me a, a social media message because 99% of them are just pure vitriol. Mm. And I'm not going to damage my mental health by reading them. <laughs> Thank you. That's quite powerful what you say because horrible things are written about all kinds of people on yeah. social media. So thank you for that advice. What are your hobbies outside of politics? Right. Well, I do quite a lot of exercise. Um, I cycle a lot um, and I swim. Uh, Now and again, I I, I get a game of tennis in, but I'd say mainly I will cycle and swim most days, swim in serpentine in London and in the sea throughout the year. uh, And I cycle to and from work. But really, those are part of a daily routine rather than a hobby. You know, otherwise I wouldn't do any exercise at all. So it's got to be part of a routine. I suppose I have hobbies. I enjoy. I thoroughly enjoy reading. I'm, I'm an eclectic reader. I will read a science book or a history book, 
and now and again a novel. Um, so I've a, a, a great interest in reading. And my passion, I suppose, I should find more time to do it than than I do, is astronomy. I have a telescope and I like to go out into the garden and look at the uh, the cosmos out there, you know, this enormous creation, and think of the billions, the hundreds of billions of stars that are out there. And some people say to me that, you know, well, you know, isn't, you know, if, if, and, and you're a Christian, Desmond, is if, if, as the Bible tells us, you know, man, the creation of man is God's main effort. Mm-hmm. Isn't that negated by this vast universe that he created? Um, and you know, you, you're just a tiny, um, a tiny, insignificant speck in this vast universe. And I think actually, you've got this the wrong way round. It's precisely because our bodies are composed of stardust, literally, the large molecules of which we're composed were only created in the intense pressures of collapsing stars over generations and generations over billions of years. We are the result of this enormous effort. It shows actually the opposite. It shows the extent to which our creator went to make us. It reinforces our significance to him rather than the opposite. The murder of David Onus impacted Parliament and society in a profound way. What do you believe needs to be done at grassroots level to combat knife crime and other forms of serious violence? Well, I think there were two things that came out of that, and I think they were conflated in in an unhelpful way. Um, And the first was that, you know, we have this very adversarial form of politics, uh, often uh, informed by a a measure of quite unnecessary unpleasantness. We ought to be able to disagree with one another honorably rather than attributing the basest motives to those with whom we disagree. And there was a great feeling that came out of the uh, assassination of uh, David uh, that we in Parliament should take the lead by behaving a lot better towards one another. Well, it didn't last very long, did it? You know, within, within days, you know, last uh, Wednesday, Wednesday this week, the debate on the uh, procedures following the, 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 the Standards Committee report on Owen Patterson. You know, you know, the fact is there are perfectly reasonable positions to be taken on both sides about whether the treatment of Owen had been fair or or unfair, you know, you can take either point of view. You don't have to accuse the other side of being mired in sleaze because they happen to disagree with you. Uh, And I think that, so that broke down. But do I attribute the death of, uh, the assassination of David Amos to a, a violence, even if only in language, in politics. No, I don't. I think that, you know, actually that's always been part of our politics. It comes and goes, swings with the pendulum a bit, but I don't think that has ever been part of the problem which has led to the issues that led to Sir David's death. That is very much 
a violent ideology that comes with this this heresy, this Islamism heresy that has this perverse belief that somehow you will be welcomed into heaven um, if you kill as many people uh, as possible. You know, it's more the worship of Kali than it is uh, to Allah, the merciful. Um, uh, and so I think that, that, that that's a completely different phenomenon. And I see that as diff wholly different again to the general knife crime that we experience. And I think that that comes from a, you know, a, a sort of despair in society, uh, a view that life is cheap and unworthy and, and isn't worth living. And, um, you know, it's a big deal if you take someone's life, it's not worth a great deal. And I think that that comes from a, we need to be much more alive to you know, the, the quality of people's lives, nurturing them from school, from family onwards to try and dignify their existence and show that, you know, actually, no, life, life is worth living. Life is worth a great deal. It isn't cheap. Your creator loves you and wants you to have a full life. I do see this as a, a religious um, uh, enterprise, you know, a quest, a, a revitalization of society, uh, an evangelical revival, if you like, to inform people that, you know, life has a huge value. Uh, and, you know, you mustn't, you know, despair and treat it as if it was worthless and you know, take it when necessary. Thank you so much, Desmond. Just, just quickly, um, your camera's off, so I don't know. Uh, your camera's off. I couldn't, I could hear you, but I couldn't see. You. Oh, it's gone off. Right. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you think, uh, thank you. You might want to raise the camera just a little bit because the bottom half of your face is. Oh, perhaps I should sit back a bit. How, how, how about that? Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Thank you. And in our last interview, you talked about the persecutions that Christians face globally. So how do you believe that Parliament can work together to raise awareness of these issues? Well, I think we've got we've got to debate it more often. But to be fair, we, we have given it uh, quite a lot of uh, coverage recently. I was very, very encouraged by the um, the report that was produced by uh, the Bishop of Exeter, I think it was, for um, the Foreign Office to try and inform the Foreign Office about the importance of projecting the values of religious freedom uh, throughout the world and the help that we expect our embassies in foreign countries to give to persecuted uh, religious minorities and particular and in particular Christians because they do tend to, to, to get much more persecution uh, uh, than other religions worldwide, of course, it's by no means exclusive. Um, but equally, I think it's very healthy that the Prime Minister has appointed a, a rep special representative, a member of Parliament, for religious freedom in, in the form of um, Fiona Bruce, 
at the moment. She's very, very active in this sphere. And I think it's just a question of continually reminding. And so whenever a minister goes overseas to speak to foreign countries, you know, this is one of the top items on his agenda. You know, we are a country that believe in projecting freedom of religion throughout the world, and it informs all our values, and it's part of our trade deals, it's part of our international aid development, it's part of global Britain, and we need to project that. Thank you so much for that answer. And the last question I'd like to ask you is, in 2016, you were knighted for political and parliamentary service. How do you think that your success as an MP will pave the way for the next generation of Britain? Well, I come back to that point about all political careers ending in failure. Um, how do you... Well, first of all, the first point I'd make is I'm absolutely humbled by when I look round at the huge... Um, public service carried out voluntarily by so many of my constituents to think, you know, that I got a knighthood when they deserved so much more. It's, it's you know, well, hey, I wasn't going to turn it down, was I? But I don't believe, I don't believe any of us get what we deserve. We all deserve a whipping. Um, <laughs> but hey, we're redeemed by God's love. Um, and uh, but but so many of my constituents deserve so much more recognition uh, than I've received. Um, how how should we inform uh, future generations of MPs? Well, I think that they're they're quite savvy. I mean, I've been very impressed by uh, young politicians coming in, and they're very much more open to engaging with ordinary people in a way that perhaps a former generation of MPs regarded themselves as perhaps a little grand. You know, I mean, when I, when I was, when I was first um, looking for a parliamentary seat, the key question on every selection committee was, will you live in this constituency? Will it be your main home? Will your children go to our local schools? Because they had become rather tired of a generation of members of parliament who didn't live and mix in their constituency, who might come every now and again to, you know, or, on a sort of semi-regal visit um, uh, and didn't get stuck in. And I think you've got a generation of MPs now who are much keener to get stuck in and mix and, and, and be much closer to the people that they represent and much more like the people that they represent. Where I've got a criticism of them is this. They are far too um, what's the word? impressionable by social media. So you'll often speak to a colleague on a Monday morning about the parliamentary business in the week ahead, and they're full of, you know, the emails or the, or the text messages or the um, the uh, WhatsApp or um, uh, tweet, tweets that they got over the weekend telling them, you know, that they shouldn't do X and they should do Y and all the rest. I think, you know, hold on a minute. As I, I, I made the point before, you know, I've got 70,000 constituents, 70,000 voters out there. 
99.99% of them have not expressed an opinion to me because I've had 20 or 50 even emails or text messages over the weekend saying you mustn't do X, you must vote against Y. It does not represent, it is not representative of the overwhelming majority of your constituents. You are there as the representative of everyone. And the chief duty you owe to your constituents is your judgment. It's your job to listen to the debate and come to a decision. And you must be very careful not to be the prisoner of one particularly vociferous lobby. Thank you so much for such an excellent interview, Sir Desmond. I always enjoy interviewing you. You're charismatic, uh, very devoted to your faith, and you have so much wisdom. So thank you for taking the time out to be interviewed by me once again. Well, thank you. Uh, I enjoy these conversations a great deal too. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank, thank you, Sir Desmond. Thanks a lot. Cheerio.